Section 33 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 44 The Cruise of the Alabama, Part 3. The Emperor of the French walked his own wild road whither that led him. He overran a certain portion of Mexico with his troops. He captured Puebla after a long and desperate resistance. He occupied the capital and set up the Mexican Empire with Maximilian as emperor. French troops remained to protect the new empire. Against all this, the United States government protested from time to time. They disclaimed any intention to prevent the Mexican people from establishing an empire if they thought fit, but they pointed out that grave inconveniences must arise if a foreign power like France persisted in occupying with her troops any part of the American continent. The Monroe Doctrine, which, by the way, was the invention of George Canning and not of President Monroe, does not forbid the establishing of a monarchy on the American continent, but only the intervention of a European power to set up such a system or any system opposed to liberty there. However, the Emperor Napoleon cared nothing just then about the Monroe Doctrine, complacently satisfied that the United States was going to pieces, and that the Southern Confederacy would be his friend and ally. He received the protests of the American government with unveiled indifference. At last, the tide in American affairs turned. The Confederacy crumbled away. Richmond was taken, Lee surrendered, Jefferson Davis was a prisoner. Then the United States returned to the Mexican question, and the American government informed Louis Napoleon that it would be inconvenient, gravely inconvenient, if he were not to withdraw his soldiers from Mexico. A significant movement of American troops under a renowned general, then flushed with success, was made in the direction of the Mexican frontier. There was nothing for Louis Napoleon but to withdraw. Up to the last he had been rocked in the vainest hopes. Long after the end had become patent to every other eye, he assured an English member of Parliament that he looked upon the Mexican Empire as the greatest creation of his reign. The Mexican Empire lasted two months and a week after the last of the French troops had been withdrawn. Maximilian endeavored to raise an army of his own and to defend himself against the daily increasing strength of Juarez. He showed all the courage which might have been expected from his race and from his own previous history. But in an evil hour for himself, and yielding, it is stated, to the persuasion of a French officer, he had issued a decree that all who resisted his authority in arms should be shot. By virtue of this monstrous ordinance, Mexican officers of the regular army, taken prisoners while resisting as they were bound to do the invasion of a European prince, were shot like brigands. The Mexican general, Ortega, was one of those thus shamefully done to death. When Juarez conquered and Maximilian in his turn was made a prisoner, he was tried by court-martial, condemned, and shot. His death created a profound sensation in Europe. He had in all his previous career won respect everywhere, 
and even in the mexican scheme he was universally regarded as a noble victim who had been deluded to his doom the conduct of juarez in thus having him put to death raised a cry of horror from all europe but it must be allowed that by the fatal decree which he had issued the unfortunate maximilian had left himself liable to a stern retaliation there was cold truth in the remark made at the time that if he had been only general and not archduke maximilian his fate would not have aroused so much surprise or anger the french empire never recovered the shock of this mexican failure it was chiefly in the hope of regaining his lost prestige that the emperor tried to show himself a strong man in german affairs more than three years before the fall of maximilian the present writer in commenting on louis napoleon's scheme ventured to predict that mexico would prove the moscow of the second empire time has not shown that the prediction was rash the french empire outlived the mexican empire by three years and a few weeks from the entering of moscow to the arrival at st helena the interval was three years and one month we need not follow any further the history of the american civil war the restoration of the union the assassination of president lincoln and the emancipation of the colored race from all the disqualifications as well as all the bondage of the slave system belong to american and not to english history but the alabama dispute led to consequences which are especially important to england and which shall be described in their due time meanwhile it is necessary for the proper appreciation of the final terms of the settlement that we should see exactly how the dispute arose and what was the condition of public feeling in this country at the time when it grew into serious proportions if the final settlement was felt to be humiliating in england it must be owned that those who are commonly called the governing classes had themselves very much to blame their conviction that the civil war must lead to the disruption of the union was at the bottom of much of the indifference and apathy which for a long time was shown by english officials in regard to the remonstrances of the united states the impression that we might do as we liked with the north was made only too obvious the united states must indeed then have felt that they were receiving a warning that to be weak is to be miserable it is not surprising if they believed at that time that england was disposed to adopt sir giles overreach's way of thinking we worldly men when we see friends and kinsmen past hope sunk in their fortunes lend no hand to lift them up but rather set our feet upon their heads to press them to the bottom it is not certain that the supporters of the southern side at any time actually outnumbered the champions of the north and of the union but they seemed for the greater part of the war's duration to have the influence of the country mainly with them a superficial observer might have been excused at one time if he said that england as a whole was on the side of the secession this would have been a very inaccurate statement of the case but the inaccuracy would have been excusable and even natural the vast majority of what are called the governing classes were on the side of the south by far the greater number of the aristocracy of the official world of members of parliament of military and naval men were for the south london club life was virtually all southern 
the most powerful papers in london and the most popular papers as well were open partisans of the southern confederation in london to be on the side of the union was at one time to be eccentric to be un-english to be yankee on the other hand most of the great democratic towns of the midland and of the north were mainly in favour of the union the artisans everywhere were on the same side this was made strikingly manifest in lancashire the supply of cotton from america nearly ceased in consequence of the war and the greatest distress prevailed in that county the cotton famine called by no exaggerated name set in all that private benevolence could do all that legislation enabling money to be borrowed for public works to give employment could do was for a time hardly able to contend against the distress yet the lancashire operatives were among the sturdiest of those who stood out against any proposal to break the blockade or to recognize the south mr cobden and mr bright and the manchester school generally or at least all that were left of them were for the north a small but very influential number of thoughtful men mr john stuart mill at their head were faithful to their principles and stood firmly by the cause of the north but the voice of london that is the voice of what is called society and of the metropolitan shopkeeping classes who draw their living from society all this was for the south it was not a question of liberal and tory the tories on the whole were more discreet than the liberals it was not from the conservative benches of the house of commons that the bitterest and least excusable denunciations of the northern cause and of the american republic were heard it was a liberal who declared with exultation that the republic bubble had burst it was a liberal mr roebuck who was most clamorous for english intervention to help the south it was lord russell who described the struggle as one in which the north was striving for empire and the south for independence it was mr gladstone who said that the president of the southern confederation mr jefferson davis had made an army had made a navy and more than that had made a nation on the other hand it is to be remarked that among the liberals even of the official class were to be seen some of the staunchest advocates of the northern cause the duke of argyle championed the cause from warm sympathy sir george lewis from cool philosophy mr charles villiers and mr milner gibson were frankly and steadily on the side of the north the conservative leaders on the whole behaved with great discretion mr adams wrote in july eighteen sixty three that the opposition leaders are generally disinclined to any demonstrations whatever several of them in reality rather sympathize with us but the body of their party continue animated by the same feelings to america which brought on the revolution and which drove us into the war of eighteen twelve lord derby indeed expressed his conviction that the union never could be restored but lord palmerston had done the same mr disraeli abstained from saying anything that could offend any northerner and gave no indication of partisanship on either side lord stanley always spoke like a fair and reasonable man who understood thoroughly what he was talking about in this he was unfortunately somewhat peculiar among the class to which he belonged 
not many of them appeared precisely to know what they were talking about they took their opinions from the most part from the times and from the talk of the clubs the talk of the clubs was that the southerners were all gentlemen and very nice fellows who were sure to win and that the northerners were low trading shopkeeping fellows who did not know how to fight were very cowardly and were certain to be defeated there was a the theory that the northerners really rather liked slavery and would have had it if they could and that a negro slave in the south was much better off than a free negro in the northern states the geography of the question was not very clearly understood in the clubs those who endeavoured to show that it was not easy to find a convenient dividing line for two federations on the north american continent were commonly answered that the mississippi formed exactly the suitable frontier it was an article of faith with some of those who then most eagerly discussed the question in london that the mississippi flowed east and west and separated neatly the seceding states from the states of the north the times was the natural instructor of what is called society in london and the times was unfortunately very badly informed all through the war after the failure of general lee's attempt to carry invasion into the north and the simultaneous capture of vicksburg by general grant any one it might have been thought who was capable of forming an opinion at all must have seen that the flood-tide of the rebellion had been reached and was over that the south would have to stand on the defensive from that hour and that the overcoming of its defence considering the comparative resources of the belligerents was only a question of time yet for a whole year or more the london public was still assured that the confederates were sweeping from victory to victory that wherever they seemed even to undergo a check that was only a part of their superior policy which would presently vindicate itself in greater victory that the north was staggering crippled and exhausted and that the only doubt was whether general lee would not at once march for washington and establish the southern government there almost to the very hour when the south its brave and brilliant defence all over had to confess defeat and yield its broken sword to the conquerors the london public was still invited to believe that mr davis was floating on the full flood of success while the hearts of all in richmond were filled with despair and the final surrender was accounted there a question of days the southern sympathizers in london were complacently bidden to look out for the full triumph and the assured independence of the southern confederation on the last day of december eighteen sixty four the times complained that mr seward and other teachers or flatterers of the multitude still affect to anticipate the early restoration of the union and in three months from that date the rebellion was over those who read and believed in such instruction and up to the very last their name was legion must surely have been bewildered when the news came of the capture of richmond and the surrender of lee they might well have thought that only some miraculous intervention of a malignant fate could thus all at once have converted victory into defeat and turned the broken worthless levies of grant and sherman into armies of conquerors in the end the southern population were as bitter against us as the north the southern states fancied themselves deceived they too had mistaken the unthinking utterances of what is called society in england for the expression of english statesmanship and public feeling 
it is proper to assert distinctly that at no time had the english government any thought of acting on the suggestion of the emperor of the french and recognizing the south lord palmerston would not hear of it nor would lord russell what might have come to pass if the southern successes had continued a year longer it would be idle now to conjecture but up to the turning point our statesmen had not changed and after the turning point change was out of the question there is nothing to blame in the conduct of the english government throughout all this trying time except as regards the manner in which they dismissed the remonstrances about the building of the privateers but it is not likely that impartial history will acquit them of the charge of having been encouraged in their indifference by the common conviction that the union was about to be broken up and that the north was no longer a formidable power End of section 33